Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. The others we will turn to, but Luke chapter 20, 27 through 38, the title is The God of the Living. Let me ask you a question here. If you were alone on a deserted island, so can you remember? So you're alone on a deserted island with a pig that you have raised from birth, not your birth, but from its birth. Would you eat the pig or starve to death? You don't have to answer. It's rhetorical. Just something to think about. Bacon is delicious. That is right. Let me ask you another one. If you got to choose between 50 years of being incredibly happy or to live forever and be unhappy, what would you choose? And choose wisely because you're sitting next to your spouse. So, be very... you know, silly questions and ludicrous hypothetical situations have always been used to trap someone into affirming something that they truly don't believe in or to try to convince others that their beliefs are absurd. People who are skeptical of God have used that for generations, for millennia actually. When they ask questions about God like, well, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? Have you ever heard that? That one, maybe you've asked yourself. Or maybe can God make a square, a circle? Or, you know, some other type of strange question which they're trying to do a gotcha. See, is God really all powerful? Is God really all kind? Is he all loving? Some will say, well, if God is so loving and kind, why do children get cancer? And it shuts us up many times, right? It's very, very difficult to answer that question. Or we lose someone we love, someone we're close to. And we think, is God loving and kind? And so many times, silly questions, hypothetical questions, or sometimes just the real, real ones are trying to gotcha to try to diminish God or to deny him his power, maybe even his existence. In asking these types of questions, they're trying to deflect what is taught in Scripture and what we believe about God. Today, we're going to see another group of religious leaders who are trying to make Jesus look ridiculous. Last week, we looked at Luke chapter 20. We, Luke recorded Jesus' uh, confrontation with the religious and political leaders. Remember, shall we pay taxes? And it takes the form of questions. This is the third question we're looking at this week. Last week, it was about a, a, legal, a legal question about the law of Moses, of whether or not it was lawful to pay taxes to the hated Roman government. Jesus responded in the affirmative. You know this phrase, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but also render the things to God, the things that are God. By rendering to Caesar, they ultimately render to God who put all things under Christ. So we learn that by paying our taxes, by doing that which the government has asked us to, we are then submitting to God's will and understanding that we're submitting to God's authority because God is over Caesar. 
So we learn that it was God who is over Caesar. Caesar does not get to choose what is his. We saw that during COVID and we talked a little bit about that. We won't go much further than that. But all things belong to God. And one of the things he has given to Caesar is the ability to tax, to show submission to our government. So Jesus jumps into that question and he does a Solomonic type answer in which he answers in such a way that makes both groups just go, whoa, no way to answer that way. Pastor John Piper notes that God's supreme authority limits the authority of Caesar and the allegiance we owe him so that we need to understand that as well. Now, as we come to today's passage, we're going to consider the third question that they're going to ask Jesus. And again, these questions are not meant to, they're not genuine questions in which they really want to know what God or Jesus thinks or what Jesus believes. They're trying to entrap him. They're trying to discredit him in front of the people. Luke records a new group of religious leaders this time who approached Jesus with an unlikely scenario trying to make him look foolish and uneducated about the scriptures. So let's go ahead and introduce ourselves to a group called the Sadducees. It's in Luke chapter 20. We're going to look at verses 27 through 33 here where it says there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. Just an editor's note, that's what we've been singing about all this morning. I don't know if you caught that theme, but we've been singing about the resurrection. So the Sadducees did not believe that there was a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, now they're going to go back to the law. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, okay, you got that? A wife but no children, that man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. Here's the, here's the scenario. The first took a wife and died without children. The second then married her in order to give her a child for his first brother. But he also uh, died and, and the second, the third, and, and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children to die. So in other words, all seven brothers uh, married her. They all died without giving her children. This is the unlikely scenario. Afterward, the woman also died. So here's the question. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Interesting question. Father, I think, pray that you just be with us this morning as we look at this very unlikely and ridiculous scenario. But yet there's, this, there's a little bit of truth here that they're trying to twist. And Father, we find that many times that's what those who hate you, who deny you, try to do. And Lord, even our own hearts, if we're honest, many times does the same thing. So as we look at this uh, question, as we look at Jesus' answer, I pray that you open up our minds and hearts to receive your word again with joy and gladness, but also to understand, then to not only know and understand, but also then to apply it as we respond to the Spirit's work in our lives. In your name, amen. Now, the Sadducees, let's get you who, who they are, were a very wealthy, powerful, and influential religious party. Remember, there was the Sadducees, there was the Pharisees, the Herodians that we talked about last week. That's a political group. There were the Zealots, were those who were, were, were always working to overthrow the government. So there's these different groups of people. They served as priests and were in charge of the temple. So they were very, very high. They were in the temple. They were in charge of all the temple worship. 
Politically, they were pro-Roman because the Romans kept them in power. Theologically, they were more fundamental, believing only in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, Matthew, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Phidicus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those are the five books. They, anything else, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, uh, Habakkuk, they did not believe in those books. It was only in those five books. This is what they believed. They were rivals with the Pharisees who were more popular. So they were rivals with them. The Pharisees were more popular because the Sadducees, no one likes the rich people, right? They're wealthy ones who control everything. The fundamentals, the ones that are just really strict. So they loved the Pharisees, but the Pharisees weren't really good people either. Jesus was always on them. So Dr. Schreiner points out that the Sadducees were politically conservative and collaborated with the Roman authority and rule. So these people were not liked at all. They upheld the written law and rejected the oral, t- oral tradition of the Pharisees. And they also emphasized human free will and did not believe in the resurrection. They became involved because Jesus had disrupted their business by cleaning out the temple. We saw that uh, several weeks ago. They did not like that Jesus was in the temple overturning tables and running people out. Since the political question of last week did not work... They now go to a theological question, a little bit one different. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection or spiritual beings, including angels. So they came up with an outlandish scenario to try and demonstrate how absurd a belief in the resurrection of the dead is. They believe that the teaching of the resurrection from the dead was ridiculous. There is no way anyone rises from the dead. You're dead, and that's it. You're dead. There's no life after So they ask a silly hypothetical question that they believe proves the absurdity of the belief in the resurrection of the dead. Now, they're trying to prove that the belief in the resurrection was illogical and irrational. Now, the scenario they gave was ridiculous, but it was plausible in the life of a Jew. The Levite law that they are referring to is found in Deuteronomy. Remember, they only believed in those first five books. So this was in Deuteronomy, and so they're following it. The principle can be found in Genesis chapter 38. And the purpose of the law was to maintain family heritage along with the tribal lands and the property in ancient Israel, as well as for the protection of the widow. That was a word for, so let me break it down. So what they believed is, remember, when Israel went into land, they did not receive personal land that you and I think of today. Each land was given to a family. So if you were a family like the Smith, you got this part of property. If you're the Franz, you got this part of the Johnsons, so on and so forth. You would get a portion of land, and that would be your land forever. Now, that's how you could raise money, because you could rent off your land, but in seven years, you got it back. Or you could borrow off that land, and in seven years, you would get it back. So the thing is, is that that land always stayed with you. Now, what it would do, just like many times today, is that the son, if you had a son, he would get that land. However, if the husband died and there was no son, then his brother had to then marry his widow and get the son. And that first son would then get the land from the other man. Does that make sense? So that's kind of how it went. So they're saying, listen, so one died, so now the other brother, who is unmarried has to now marry her, give her a child till he gets a son, and then that son doesn't belong to him. It actually goes to the dead brother. But in this case, 
Seven of them wind up dying. Ridiculous scenario. And then they wind up having no heir. And then she dies. And then the question is, whose wife will she be? Now, interestingly, most cultures have a belief in some type of life after death. And they were probably, the Sadducees speaking of, were probably basing this on Jesus' previous statement. You'll see it here on the monitor, I believe, in John 5, where Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of God and those who hear will what? Live. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. And he has given him the authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. So Jesus has the authority to raise the dead to life. In their minds, Jesus' teaching was not found in the writings of Moses in those first five books of the Old Testament and would lead to ridiculous outcomes if true. In other words, in this scenario, it's plausible, but they would say this is just ridiculous. It makes no sense. So hopefully you're with me there. That's the absurdity of the question. They're trying to say, what in the world is going on here? So let's look at Jesus' answer because that's the most important part. And we're in verse 34. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to that, uh, I'm sorry, considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore. Because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush. Remember Moses and the burning bush? When he recalls the Lord, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. By the way, if you have your Bibles and so underline that phrase. He calls the Lord, the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And here's the thing. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. Once again, Jesus has take has to take the religious leaders to scriptural school, Bible school, to instruct them on the scriptures. First, Jesus is pointing out that these Sadducees, these religious leaders, these priests did not understand marriage. The purpose of marriage is not only the propagation of human life and fellowship and helping each other to fill the creation mandate, but it also was created to be a picture of the relationship between Jesus and the church. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians, if you would, chapter 7. In eternity, you and I need to understand that this picture, this life of we're living in, this picture of marriage is actually complete. In other words, marriage is not needed in heaven as our focus will be on serving and worshiping only God. Paul gives one reason why marriage will not be in heaven. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, look at verse 32. Paul says, I want you to be free from all anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord. In other words, if you're single here, is your focus should be not on yourself, not on your career, not on investments, but it should be on serving the Lord. But the married man 
is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. He's thinking about providing for his family, making the, you know, putting food on the table, so on and so forth. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, or the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is, uh, yeah, married woman is anxious about worldly things on how to please her husband, how to do those things to provide for it. So he's saying here there's a sense in which marriage many times can take us away from the things of the Lord. Now, marriage is good and honorable. God created marriage. I believe God's default position is seek marriage at all possible until God has made it very clear that he's given you the gift of singleness. However, in this case, marriage for you and I is not about you or I. It's not even about making you and I happy. Marriage, if you're married, if you're here thinking about marriage, here's this. Marriage is not about your happiness, but about your holiness. I usually ask this when I'm talking to two people that that come to counseling for marriage or or wanting to be married. And I say the only reason or the main reason why you should get me married is because you believe that both of you can serve the Lord better together than you can apart. And I believe that's important for us to understand. So marriage is not just about your happiness, but it's a picture of Christ's love for the church. Heaven is anxiety free. Our focus will not be on the things of the world, but but we will now be free to worship and please the Father alone. Fathers, mothers, when you get into heaven, you are not going to have to worry about potty training. You're not going to have to worry about putting food on the table. You're not going to be worried about making your boss happy, about what you, if you've got enough money to, to pay the bills. You are not going to have to worry about that. Amen? Amen? All right. Now, but we are here on earth, so you've got to do those things. All right? We do have to render to Caesar's things that are Caesar's. Dr. Schreiner notes that Jesus answers the Sadducees by appealing to the differences between this age. You and I live in this age. Now, that's just a term that you and I live in this present time, in this world. You know, we have to, we're getting married. We're having children. We're enjoying life. We are, we are having to, to, to make a living and do all these things. But there's a difference between this age, this present time, and the future, the eternal time that he's looking at. The notions of two ages is a common Jewish belief, but the Sadducees do not understand it. During this age, this present time, life is marked by marriage, but the age to come cannot be equated with life in this present age. The life that you are living now is not the life that you will be living in eternity. This is a temporal life, but you and I have an eternal life waiting for those who call on him, who repent and turn and put their trust in Christ. Those, going back to Dr. Schreiner, those who are worthy of obtaining the resurrection life do not marry and are not given in marriage. Marriage and offspring are fitting in this world that includes death. Okay? We get married and have children, so we propagate the species, right? There's something innate within us to want to do that. And by the way, I am excited. I'm going to be a grandpa again. And so uh, I, I got three, and I got, I got, I, I, I'm praying that we have a few more. And so that is a wonderful thing. But in the age to come, death ceases to be a reality. 
You and I know that there's two things that Benjamin Franklin says that are certain in life. Death and taxes. You can't get away from them. And so you and I know that death awaits us eventually. But as you look here on the monitor, continue with Dr. Schreiner. He says, in the new age to come, human beings will not become angels. That's not what Jesus is saying. But they will be like angels in that marriage and death will not constitute their life. Since death is no more, we, need, we no longer need to propagate our species. They will experience the fullness of what it means to be God's sons when they enjoy the resurrection. The Sadducees make this fundamental mistake, he writes, of thinking that life in the age to come is similar to life in the present age, as if there is no discontinuity between this age and one to come. So first, they did not understand marriage. Now, my, I'll have to admit, my wife is not in here, so I can say this. My wife does not like this part of the message. Jesus, she does not like the fact that her and I are not married, so to speak, in heaven. However, she will be more happy with me in heaven than she has ever been here on earth. Don't ask her for, uh, for, for confirmation on that. Just take my word for it. Because I then will be perfect. And I will be able to attain perfection. So in there, we need to understand that there is a difference. They just didn't understand marriage. Marriage is a perfect of Christ's love for the church. And he gave himself up, Ephesians chapter 5. We don't have time to get all in there, but we will wait maybe uh, sometime soon. Secondly, here's their second mistake. They did not understand the faithfulness of God. And that's the problem. When someone says, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it up? Can God, can God make a square out of a circle? They don't understand the character and the person of God. And I'd have to admit that there's times that I don't understand all there is to know about who God is. In this case, they did not understand the faithfulness of God. Jesus accuses them of ignorance and he points out two errors. They did not know scriptures nor the power of God. Turn to Genesis 17. The question about the resurrection is about really the faithfulness and promises of God. It's not about a man or a woman marrying seven brothers and then dying. That sounds like a TV show, right? Seven brothers. What's that? Seven? seven yeah, whatever. So... I know that there was something there. But in Genesis 17, what they did not understand is who God is. See, his covenant, God made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this blessing was forever, for eternity. Look at Genesis chapter 7, first book of the, of the Old Testament. 17 verse 4. Yahweh says, God says, behold, my covenant is with you. This is not a contract. This is a covenant where God says, I will do this despite however you may act. You see, that's the difference between what we call a marriage contract in which if you love me, I'll love you. If you do this, I'll do this. This is a covenant where God says, I will follow through on my part no matter what you do. Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father, speaking to Abraham, of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, father of many. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And as you and I think of the Mideast or the Middle East, and we think of all the things that are going on there, those are all children of Abraham. 
He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Remember, this is when Abraham's almost 90 years old. He has no children. And I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. The promise of the blessings to Abraham is eternal. It is based on God's faithfulness, not on the patriarchs, not on on, on our faithfulness. It's based on God's faithfulness. The covenant was not voided in their death. When Abraham died, it's not that God says, well, I'm not going to be your God anymore. I'm not going to be covenant loving to you. But it's going to follow them for eternity in the new age. In his answer, he quotes Exodus 3, 6. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob to answer the Sadducees. Who should have known that verse? but did not understand the passage. You see, like other religions, you and I serve a living God. One not created with human hands out of gold and silver or wood. In Jeremiah chapter 10, Yahweh God pronounces the foolishness of worshiping false gods. This is the world. He says a tree from the forest is cut down and then it's worked with an ax by hands of a craftsman. They then decorate this piece of wood with silver and gold. They fasten it with a hammer and nail so that it cannot move to keep it in one place. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. And this is what people would worship. Images of creeping things and, 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 and the celestial bodies and so on and so forth. But they could not speak. They could not promise them in anything. But in verse 6, if you're there, it says, There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Now we join with Moses and the children of Israel, who sung in Exodus 15, 11. You'll see it here on the monitor. Lord, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, revered with praises and performing wonders? I don't know what God you're serving today. It may be the God of pleasure. Maybe it's the God of convenience. Maybe it's the God of money and greed. Maybe it's the God of family. Whatever it is that you're pursuing with your finances, with your time, your calendar, those are your gods. What is it that you dream and meditate on? Could be the lotto. Those gods are worthless gods. For those of us who believe in the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, we have a God who lives forever. And his promise to the children of Abraham, which you and I find in scripture that we are grafted in, is that we will live forever. And there's the thing. Is when God says that he's the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for a long time. 400 years. But Yahweh, the name of God, God's personal name is Yahweh. 
He says, I'm God of Abraham. I was, not, I was the God of. See, they couldn't even see it. And how many of us read that and don't think of the same thing? In other words, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob might have been in, 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 the, in that cave in Canaan where they were buried. That's where their body was. Their soul and spirit was in the presence of the almighty living God. Serving him, worshiping, enjoying his presence as you and I will one day if we bow before him. One of the wonders that he will perform, speaking of Jesus, is the resurrection of the dead. Again, quoting Dr. Schreiner, he says, Jesus proceeds to defend the resurrection from the scriptures, the scriptures that they believed were true. And he draws from the Pentateuch because that's all they accepted. And when Moses encountered Yahweh at the burning bush, the Lord identified himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then on the monitor, if God is their God, then they must continue to live since God is not the God of the dead. That's an amen. Or a yippee. It's something. God is not the God of the dead. And their continued life testifies to the fact that they will be raised on the day of resurrection. As usual, Jesus' answer had its desired effect as we go back to Luke chapter 20. Look with me at verse 39. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. They understood exactly what Jesus said. Now, I don't think the Sadducees did. It said the scribes here, those who that would write in the law and teach it. They said, you know what? You're right. But look at here. For they no longer dared ask him another question. Jesus silenced his critics with the truth that God is the God of the living. So there's two things here I want you to grasp. Number one is that you and I need to have a commitment to all of Scripture in our thinking. So when people come and ask us questions, we need to have all of Scripture. Unfortunately, today you'll see people... By the way, does anyone know, back in the 70s, uh, if you were in a, watching a football game or a baseball game, there'd be some guy with a rainbow afro that would be holding up a sign saying what? John 3.16. Now today, since the early aughts, you might see that same person holding up a sign that says what verse? Does anyone know? Judges 7.1. Judge not lest ye be judged. Have you ever heard that? Again, they do not understand scripture. Read the next six verses. And see, this is the issue is many times... When people come to us with very difficult or maybe absurd, ridiculous questions about God, you and I need to understand all of Scripture. Unfortunately, there's Christians who say, well, I only believe the words in red, as if they were originally written in red. <laughs> they weren't. I'm not even sure if they had a red pen in those days. But the words of Jesus, they're the most important. But you know, take, Jesus wrote all of the Bible. He's the word, the Logos. He wrote all things through the Holy Spirit, through men who were inspired because the words are breathed out by God. And so you and I cannot debate those words. Now today, what we have is we're debating the words of Jesus and the words of Paul and Peter. As if those two people do not agree. Can't you wait to get to heaven? Hey, Jesus, Paul, let's have a debate. Paul's going to say, whatever he says, ditto. 
I mean, we got to look at this. This is what the world is doing. They're, they're trying to just mold us and make us and deny and diminish the very word of God. And you and I need to have a commitment to understand all of scripture. Now, I know that is very difficult. That's why we encourage you, come to our adult core class where we do a lot more teaching that's interactive on the things of God. We invite you, encourage, come here as we work our way through Luke, understanding all of what Luke says. Luke has more in it than just the birth of Christ and the death of Christ. And also, as we just encourage our small groups, coming near to the end, but coming in uh, uh, September, we'll be starting them up. It's another way to know Scripture. So you and I need to understand that the hope of the resurrection was found in the Old Testament. It was not some new teaching that Jesus was bringing up. You'll see here on the monitor, Psalm says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that's the grave David is singing, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of your life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Again, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord when? However, forever. You and I need to recognize that the resurrection of the dead is a true belief. You see, Scripture has been given for our prophet that we may know what is written, that we may know that we have eternal life. In 2 Timothy, Paul writes to his uh, spiritual son in the Lord, he says, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. That was the Old Testament, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. All scripture is breathed out, for God, is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for telling us what is right for reproof, for telling us when we've gone wrong, for correction, to tell us how to get right, and for training in righteousness, how to stay right. This is what God has given us, his word to do so, that the man of God or the daughter of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. All of us want to be competent and equipped for our jobs, for our vocation. Or our jobs as mothers, whatever it may be, we want to be competent. But we must be competent in Scripture. So when they come against you and ask you about LGBT issues or traditional marriage or, or abortion or, or mutilation of children or so on and so forth, that we have all of Scripture to bring to bear with gentleness and love, speaking the truth in love. Scripture is important. This world is drowning in the morass of relative truth. That what your truth is, is different from mine, so it doesn't matter. You do you, I'll do me. As if there is no anchor in our world. That truth is something that you can just pull out of thin air. And we see that with there's gotten us in the last five, ten years, and how quickly it has. Many times I'll ask people, what's the anchor in your life? How do you keep centered in your life of knowing what is real and what is wrong? Unless we know scripture, you and I will just drift all over the place. Number two, the second thing that you and I grasp is Jesus affirms the hope of the resurrection. Just before Jesus began cleansing out the temple that upset it, upset it, is that a word? Upset the Sadducees. He is quoted in saying in John chapter 11, 
at the death of Lazarus. You'll see it here on the screen. Or do you know? I did not, sorry. Jesus said to Martha, your brother Lazarus will rise again. He's dead. He's been buried. She says, don't worry. He's telling her, don't worry. He's going to rise from the dead. And Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So she knew the scripture. She knew the promise that Lazarus will rise again in the, in the heavens. But Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. As we sung earlier, death has lost its sting. Death will come, but it has no staying power. This body may die, but we will live forever. I don't know if you've heard of Dwight L. Moody. He's a famous preacher in the uh, 19th century, 1800s, to early 1900s. He once said, if you ever hear or read of my death in the newspaper, be not deceived. I will never be yet more alive than at that moment. You and I need to recognize that. But you and I don't think that way. Because you and I are so focused on this life. Getting the most. Grabbing that brass ring. Doing all that we can to gather and to get and keep what is ours. The Bible says that we will have a new resurrection. Landon read about it earlier that you and I groan about this. I know I do. It says that our bodies wait eagerly for the adoption of sons when God brings us to himself, the redemption of our body. You may ask, well, what is it that we long for? Well, that's what you and I long for. You and I long for this old, wretched old body to just be lost and be made renewed. The Bible says that our bodies will be like Christ's resurrection body. I believe I may have this for John 3. I do, all right. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, when Christ returns, or when death, we shall be like him, for we shall be as he is. So the question I have to ask is, what is Christ like today? Let me ask you, is Jesus Christ dead, or is he alive? He's alive. We celebrated that. We all had Easter. We know it, right? He's alive. So what is Christ's body like today? It is different than what he was born in. Jesus had a visible physical body. More than 513 people saw him. So when you think about, well, what then will our resurrection be when we get to heaven? We will have a real physical body. You'll be able to poke it and prod it. We'll be speaking. We'll have vocal cords. We'll have eyes. We're not some little spirit floating around playing with little harps. I don't want that type of heaven. I'm sure you don't either. And I don't want to be on some cloud because I'm scared of heights and I don't want to be looking down on the earth. Of course, I'm, a, I'm, I'm guessing that when I get the new body, I won't have that issue any longer or any of the other issues that I have. Jesus was recognizable. So in other words, when we are in heaven, I will know Landon. You know, I will know Matthew. And I, I pray that I know uh, Sabino and, 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 and uh, uh, Mike and so on and so forth. We will know each other. Now, we may try to um, ignore each other, but no, we won't do that. In, in heaven, we will love and care for each other like we are today. And so in that case, we are going to be visible. We are going to be recognizable. We're going to be eating. I believe that, that, remember, we are not spending life in some ethereal. We'll be living on a new terra forma, earth, this ground. 
But even this ground will no longer produce thorns and thistles. It will no longer produce weeds. It will produce nothing but peace and joy and produce. You and I are going to be enjoying a world that is perfect. I believe I have up this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It tells us a little bit about the difference. On the psalm, this is the life that we live now. On the, and so it would be probably your left then is the life that's going to be in heaven. In this world, we're perishable. Our, our bodies die. They decay. We suffer. We have back pains. But when you and I are born again or, or raised again, it's imperishable. There'll be no pain, no sorrow, no sickness. There'll be no, no, no aches and pains to go with it, no death. In this way, we're dishonored in the fact that we know that our bodies are not perfect. Our bodies have to do dishonorable things, things that we don't like to talk about, right? Those things that are left in the privacy. But in raised, it's glory. It's beautiful. It's perfect. In weakness, but in power. In natural, but now spiritual. Now, spiritual does not mean that we're, that we're spirits. But no, we have flesh and blood. But it's a new spiritual reality. Not only that, it's not mortal, but immortality. You and I will live forever. Now, with that, that resurrection is our hope. And again, I want to give you a new definition of hope. It's not a hope that's wishful thinking, but a hope that's a confident expectation that God will fulfill his promises. This is the God who says that if you accept me, I will raise you from the dead and you will die no more. That's the truth that God has given you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, do we have that, Ben? Paul writes, for we know that in this tent, or if the tent, which is our earthly home, speaking of our body is this earthly tent, if that is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this, to- this tent, we groan longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. For me, it's the presence of sin. If you're like me, and I'm sure you are, each and every moment of our life sometimes is just a struggle with temptation. A desire to be angry, frustrated, bitter, discontent, murder, theft, so on and so forth. The Bible says there'll be a day when that will be gone. No longer will you struggle with the old flesh, the desire to do things that are against God. You see, the resurrection is God's plan. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29 through 30, we know this well. For those that God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, before God said, let there be light, let there be whatever, God says, I am going to take my children and I am going to conform them, make them into the image of Jesus Christ. In order that we might be the first one among many brothers. And those he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. But here's the wonderful thing. And those who he has justified, declared not guilty, he also glorified. In his biblical book, Biblical Doctrine, the editors define glorification, I believe I might have it here, is that's the final step in the process of salvation. It involves the completion of our sanctification, of being made freer from sin and more like Christ, and the removal of all spiritual, and should I add, physical defects. This is being going to be a, a glorious moment. 
My prayer is that I will be six foot four with a full head of hair. Because I believe that's how I should have been born. Something happened there. But I believe that, and I don't really believe that, but that would be my hope. But that's a wishful thinking, not a confident expectation. I don't know what my perfect body will live. You know, maybe perfection is a bald head. It could be. That's what many will say, right? And maybe Jesus was five foot six, five seven in cowboy boots. I don't know, but who knows? This may be just the perfect size, and the rest of you are just odd. I don't know. But whatever it may be, is there is going to be no defects in you and I. Now, we can't imagine that, can we? We expect that from others, but not from ourselves, only in some cases. But there will be a day when that will be totally perfect. John Murray writes that God is not the God of the dead. but He is the God of the living and therefore nothing short of resurrection to the full enjoyment of God can constitute the glory to which the living God will lead his redeemed. Let me tell you, God's plan is not just this life. He has something much better planned for his children. The resurrection is for God's glory. God will raise the dead because he cannot fail to keep his promises to them that he will be their God. If we don't have time, but we were to go to Revelation 21, you will see that. A new heaven and a new earth came down and a new Jerusalem. There'll be no sorrow, no sickness, no more pain. The former things will all be away and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Here's the folly of not believing in the resurrection as the Sadducees. Maybe you're here and you're struggling. I just don't believe. I believe that when we die, we're just dead. It's just annihilation. Nothing. Paul says, what do I gain? If humanly speaking, if I speak as a human, if I fought with the beast of Ephesus, if I stood up and fought the beast of Ephesus for my faith, as many Christians did, (coughs) if the dead are not raised... In other words, why am I taking these stonings, these beatings? Why am I willing to give my life for Christ if I am not raised from the dead? What good is it? It would be better to deny God and live this life with no, with no, with no uh, worry about temptation. I'll just enjoy life. What's that old phrase, James Dean? Someone, uh, live fast, die young, leave a good-looking corpse, something of that nature. Paul says something similar. He says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Solomon says something simple, and some of you are living that life. I'm just living my best life. I'm enjoying everything. And we live our life as if one day we will not stand before God and give an account. Or we live our lives as if we will not be raised again. This life is long, humanly speaking, but it's only temporal. You and I remember this and call this to mind at every funeral that we have to go to. To be honest, I'd rather do funerals than weddings because funeral is a time in which we think of mortality in our day. So let's ask. If you were to stand before God, for, for Christ today and he would say, why should I let you in my heaven? How would you answer? If your answer is, well, uh, I've been good, or my wife is is an angel, so I should be able to get in, or because my grandmother went to church, or because when I was in VBS as a young kid, I said a simple prayer, or because I just believe in Jesus, I'm sorry, your answer will not get you into the gates of heaven. Let me put it plainly. 
To have eternal life, you must first die to yourself. Deny yourself, your focus, your dreams, your aspirations. You must pick up the cross of Christ, his suffering, his shame, his humiliation, and you must follow him. To those who endure in that will be raised to life. To those who deny, diminish the work of Christ will live again, but spend eternity in eternal death, not in the presence of God's joy and love, but in the presence of his justice and wrath. Take my words. May the Holy Spirit start working in your heart right now. Is he calling to your shoe? Say, come to me, come to me. I am the God of the living. One day we will all stand before Christ and says that every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Do so today. For if you wait until that time, it'll be too late. Let me give you one word of encouragement before we close. You say, boy, this isn't really a Mother Day message. But I want to speak to those today that are struggling. For many people, Mother's Day is a bad day. It's a difficult day. Because your mom's not here. You lost her, maybe recently. Maybe a few years ago, or maybe a grandmother. And your heart is still heavy. Because they're not here with you. Some of you might struggle as mothers because you do not yet have children. Maybe you've lost a child. Maybe you lost a child in miscarriage. But God is the God of the living. And scripture teaches us that when we go into heaven, we will see our loved ones that trusted in Christ. And let me share with those of you who might have lost a child or lost a child in miscarriage. I truly believe that as that door opens up, that gate opens up, that the first person waiting there to welcome you into heaven will be that lost child. Give them a name, for they will know that name. And there will be no words of judgment. There will be no words of harsh. I even share that. I share this with women who abort their children. I get to speak to women who, who suffer through abortion. They aborted their child, and they're going through, and they're dealing with that. How, how am I going to face that child? That child will not condemn you. That child will not judge you. That child will run to you, mom, dad. Because God is the God of the living. Would you worship that God? Stop worshiping the God that is made by hands and philosophies and the deceits of the world. Paul's conclusion is, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in, your, that in the Lord your labor is not vain. When Paul says, why do I do this? Because if this is not true, then I might as well just eat, drink, and be merry. But instead, he says, I know that I will raise, be raised with God at the end of the ages. And because of that, I will endure all things for the sake of Christ. I will be immovable uh, uh, and steadfast, doing the work of the Lord. 
loving my wife, submitting to my husband, raising my children in the fear of the Lord. I will be serving my church, uh, being a witness to those around. Why? Because I want all that I know, all who I love, to join me in that day of resurrection. So let us do that, knowing that in this earth we will have troubles. Scripture actually uh, guarantees that all who love God will live a persecuted life. And it's coming quickly, faster than we ever expected, harder than you could ever imagine. Romans 8, 11, let me close with this. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, speaking about God the Father, the Holy Spirit, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is the promise of God. This is the scripture. This is the faithfulness of a living God. Amen? Amen. Would you join him in that today? Let us commit to knowing, understanding scripture that we may have faith to faithfully serve a living God who has promised to fully reconcile us to himself by being our God for eternity. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and Randy to join me for our pastor's prayer. I want you to take a moment just to pause and consider these words that God is the God of the living. Would you pray and ask the Holy Spirit to work in your heart? Maybe it's not, you're not a Christian. You don't know how you would get into heaven. You want to know, please see me, Landon, who read the scripture earlier, Randy, who's about to do pastor's prayer. We would love to share with you how you can too have the resurrection of the living, the resurrection from the dead. Maybe here you're struggling in life and you're not quite sure if you can continue on. You're, you're, you're finding more pleasure in this world than in the things of God and you need help. You want someone to disciple you, someone to come along with you and pray with you and help you in your struggle. We would love to do so. Or maybe you're here and you're just having the pain of someone you lost. Let us find encouragement together that we will see them again as we trust in the promises and the person of the living God. Amen? Randy, would you come and close us in prayer? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.